0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of New Books in Chinese Studies. I am your host, Julia Kablinska, and I have the pleasure today of speaking with Joshua Neves, who is Associate Professor of Cinema at Concordia University in Montreal. Professor Neves' research centers on global and digital media, with a particular focus on video, TV, and digital culture, uh, China, Asia, and the Global South. Of course, today we will be talking about his work on China. In addition to under-globalization, Beijing's media urbanisms and the chimera of Legacy, which came out with Duke in March of 2020, um, and is the topic of our conversation. Neves is also the author, the co-editor, excuse me, of Asian Video Cultures in the Penumbra of the Global, and is the lead author of a forthcoming book called Technopharmacology. Um, welcome, Joshua.
2: Thank you. Yeah, good to be here. Oh, and I should say my, my last name is Nevis.
0: Neves. Oh, Nevis, I am so sorry. <laughs> yeah, don't worry. <laughs> Apologies. Uh, if we had more time, we could go back and re-record. But alas, I don't want to impose I, on you. No, uh, that's so, well, let's start then with the traditional first question. How, Joshua, did you get into this field? Tell us a little bit about your prehistory, and uh, feel free to go ahead and uh, describe also how your graduate studies led to the development of the book that I believe is your first monograph. Correct?
2: That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, thanks. Um, I think my journey to the field was very accidental. Um, I was kind of a begrudging college student. I studied history as an undergrad, um, focusing on Mexico. I wrote my thesis on the Mexican Revolution. Um, But I finished undergrad by spending the last year in Beijing. So I think that's kind of um, the sort of accidental uh, beginning of my interest in a lot of the, the issues that later become the, the theme of this book. So I would have been, I think that would have been the year 2000 or something. I was I was living in Beijing as an undergrad. And it was one of those completely accidental um, things in the sense that I joined a trip being led by an English professor who I had taken a course with. Um, and this was one of these, uh, Zhang Ai-ping, really uh, amazing guy, one of these people who came and got a PhD in the U.S. right after the Cultural Revolution, that kind of first generation of China scholars in the U.S. and stayed. But so he led a trip and, you know, I just went because I had finished my other um, courses. And, you know, I was at uh, the Language and Culture University for a year, um, first taking classes and then also teaching English because that's something you could totally get like a reasonable job doing (laughs) in, in those days. Um, and, you know, it was a really exciting time for Chinese cinema. It was a pretty astonishing time in terms of the transformation um, of the city. And it was also my first time in China learning Chinese and all these things. It was all very new to me. But, you know, when I graduated, I, I went on to do other things. So it's not like it immediately led. I, I worked a bunch of, I think I was a substitute teacher for a couple of years. I traveled a lot, you know, kind of random Things. But when I finally did come back to graduate school, uh, especially when I started the PhD at UC Santa Barbara um, in, I don't know, I want to say 2005 or something, uh, you know, this that, that experience was still with me and I was still uh, excited enough about the project that, you know, when talking to uh, my dissertation supervisor at the time, Bashkar Sarkar, Um, about, you know, I think I probably had, I don't know, I don't know how it was for you, but I think I had like five ideas of dissertations I could write, you know, like, and they were all totally different, (laughs) which uh, I'm I'm kind of amused by now as somebody who works with a lot of PhD students. But, but, you know, we kind of settled on this project and I was able to get, you know, funding to go to China over several summers and spend a fellowship year there and, and, and all of those things. So it, it, it kind of fell together in a way that I could never have imagined. And in fact, I think when I finished my, my bachelor's, I thought if I did graduate school at all, which was, wasn't was my plan, that I would probably do Latin American studies. But I, I think through uh, both the importance of that experience in Beijing and also the kind of strange defunding of Latin American studies in the U.S. after the the 2000s. It just, you know, with all of the fascination with East Asia, I think it, it was really not getting the uh, attention. So there were there were it felt like at least there were fewer opportunities. Um,
0: yeah. Uh, so, that, I mean, that's that's sad to hear, but uh, we do have a great new book in Chinese studies as a result of that uh, situation. So. You did your PhD at UCSB. Um, who are your interlocutors? How did this, and maybe not specifically at your own institution, but how did this—the questions of this book—come about? Right? How did it crystallize as like one of the five, and to become the one? Right. <laughs> right.
2: Yeah. I mean, good question. It's so you know I was part of the first cohort um, of PhD students at UC Santa Barbara, so it was a it was like a really amazing time to be there in the sense of how excited the faculty was, right? They weren't yet kind of overburdened by all of the work it takes to run a graduate program. And, you know, one of the things that has always made the UC system so exceptional is there's just such an array of interdisciplinary and younger scholars, right? It's not like being in one of these places where everybody is a full professor who already knows what they think. And, you know, things feel a little, um, uh, as if they're already on a track. Instead, there were a lot of assistant and associate professors who were writing their first or just written their first book and who were doing exciting things. So working with people like Lisa Parks, um, you know, whose TV, satellite, environment, infrastructure, all of these sorts of issues. Um, I can remember taking like a media historiography course With her, where the way she just framed the kinds of problems that you would be encouraged to take up in the field was was you know was just overwhelming and exciting, right? It was well beyond I think what I had imagined, um, you know, of and it. At that point, we were just called film studies. Um, it later became film and media studies. But so you know, the the field in this period was 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 changing really quickly. Similarly, you know, Bashkar Sarkar, my supervisor, was working on all of these amazing projects, including uh, this kind of UC wide workshop called the Subaltern and the Popular which tried to bring together the kind of insights and a lot of the um, work associated with the subaltern studies collective and post-colonial theory with um, formulations that took the popular and popular culture seriously. So, you know, often in that work, these frames are often in tension, right? The, the, The popular is seen as a kind of a messy or corrupt or kind of manipulative space. And, you know, but so that was an area where I think once or twice every year, all of these phenomenal people from around the world would descend on campus and hang out for three days and, you know, give talks and go out drinking, you know? So it was just like, there was a lot, I
1: think, um,
2: in the air in those days and, you know, uh, of course my classmates as well, you know, the the I think we were eight in the first class because it was a brand new program, so they needed to admit enough people to to kind of get it going. And you know, so uh my my colleagues, um Jeff Scheibel, Nicole Starosielski, Heijing Chung, uh, many others, you know, all people have gone on to have academic jobs, and together we did a lot. One of the things we did together, especially Jeff and Nicole and I, is we started a a conference series that later became a journal called Media Fields. And I think that was a very early space where we were all struggling with some of these questions around spatial politics, around the relationship between media um, and political theory. And, you know, moving into some of those more material site-specific um, even technological questions that maybe were not at least in the immediate era preceding this the the primary concern uh, of film study so the first conference we had um, I want to say in 2007 um, I may have these years backwards but that that's it doesn't matter the conference speaker was um, Anna McCarthy whose book uh, ambient television was hugely uh uh, important for me, and then the second conference, the keynote speaker was Brian Larkin, whose Signal and Noise had just come out. So it was very much a moment where I think we were responding to this uh, this kind of push to take seriously some of the the situated um, material infrastructural kind of conditions. Um, of media. And so, you know, when I finally did end up in Beijing to do my research, you know, I think I was, you know, well attuned to looking for these things. And also the gaps between what people were writing about and what I was experiencing being in the city doing the research felt pretty profound at the time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that I appreciated most about your book is the way in which you situate these media practices against political theory. Um, and especially, you know, theories of globalization, as may be obvious from your title, uh, are important to your book. So maybe we can move on then, and I'll ask you more directly: What are the stakes and the questions that your book is invested in?
2: Yeah, thanks. I mean, it's 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 good to reflect back on the book. I, I think I was joking before we started that it it feels like it's been a while since I've written it. So it's 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 nice to go back to it. You know, there there are many starting points. One of them, I think, certainly um, emerged from the the year and a half period that I had spent in Beijing as a researcher. So I had already lived in China at one point, uh, you know, before this for a year and a half or something. But coming back to do the research, I I tried to sort of develop this Um, experiential, almost like perambulatory methodology of, of just moving around the city, Um, especially the inner city areas. And at one point I literally had a map on my wall where I would kind of highlight every street that I had walked down trying to like cover all of the areas, just to like, you know, this, this almost experiential atmospheric textured sense of, of, of space. And You know, one of the things that really jumped out to me was that there was a really clear kind of tension happening between a lot of the prior eras, media practices, you know, television screens on the sidewalk or in a cafe or at a little corner cigarette stand or whatever. And the new kind of technological um, devices that were being built into the city. So it was often a tension, as I think I talk about in one of the chapters between more informal kinds of uses and more state orchestrated ones. And that, that kind of metaphor become, you know, it's, and it's very present in the book, maybe, maybe too much. So even, but the, it became a way, I was really thinking about all the chapters is there seemed to be um, a very orchestrated, right. Attempt to um, rework a lot of these, um, yeah, less defined, less controlled, um, kind of practices. The some of the larger questions in terms of media and political theory, you know, they kind of emerge from that ground, I think, but they're very much part of what I was talking about before with the interest in in, in post-colonial and, and kind of global issues. And you know, another argument I make in the book, which it, it, in some ways um, you know maybe my was my hope for how the book would be read, although I'm not I'm not sure if that's uh, ended up being the case, but was to move beyond the kind of area studies model where everything is just very narrowly about China and everybody's very narrowly just talking about things other China scholars have said about China and to try to look a bit more comparatively or in a a multi-sided way about um, how similar Uh, problems were encountered in other places. And certainly uh, in South Asia, in Southeast Asia, in parts of Latin America, parts of Africa, parts of North America, for that matter, I I was struck by how many people were struggling with really similar problems um, that interested me, but how much this was not present, especially uh, in media and cultural studies on the one hand, and in uh, China slash Asian studies um, on the other. So then, you know, the the aim was to try to sort of tease some of these issues out and and to think about what we could learn about China, but also kind of the space between China and these and these global practices. So, you know, in that sense, I think the book and its larger questions, you know, were not written uh primarily even for an area studies um audience. And in fact, I talk about a lot of things in the book that I think China specialists will know well, right? Um, Although to my amusement a little bit, I think it's been, uh, although I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but it's been mostly China Studies folks who have read the book or I've been in touch with about the book. I had this idea, and maybe it comes from, you know, the kind of almost lucky impact that Larkin had with his book, but that this could be the kind of book because of the way it's written that people in other fields, especially media and cultural studies folks who I think too often don't read any book that's not implicitly about like America or whatever it's purported context is that those folks would benefit from the book because of the way it tries to, to, to balance and not assume I think too much area studies knowledge, which is sometimes the case in um, more, more specialist books.
0: Well, I think you do an admirable job of what you've just described. I, I am on the China studies side, but I'm also, I I hold a designated emphasis in media studies as well um, for my degree. And I think that this book does do that. It doesn't read like a China studies book, which I'm betraying my own biases here, but I think that's a a pro, (laughs) not a con of this book. Um, So as we move then through the rest of the book in our interview, I want to note that I, I, I like the structure that you have developed here, where you have chapters that work as pairs, right, that speak to each other about related sets of questions. And of course, um, all, all three of these pairs, there's six chapters in total, are advancing the general arguments that you have just articulated to us. Uh, so why don't we talk about the chapters then in pairs? I'll ask a few questions about each, each one of these sections. Uh, and the first one is really most explicitly about city spaces and about the production of city spaces. Beginning first with a pair, the ruins and the blueprints of Beijing, which is a pair that anybody who is in China studies or who is paying even a little bit of attention to urban studies will know that those are very potent types of forms in Chinese urban configurations. So rendering the city, what is this? What? How do ruins and blueprints render uh before we move on to the second question, which will be about the the negotiating that, those renderings.
2: Yeah, thanks. I mean, well, you know, one of the other big questions I, I didn't mention, and there are many, um, of course, has to do with um, discourses around piracy and the fake. Um, and you know all of the, the the synonyms there, so those kinds of questions very much informed you know how I was thinking about things like rendering and blueprints and ruins uh, and so forth, and especially the cultural work um, that they were perceived to do. So you know one simple argument I, I reiterate throughout the book is about how rich piracy research is. And yet at the same time, how often it's limited to questions of intellectual property. So, you know, one of the things I do in the first, I mean, throughout the book, but maybe especially in this first section you're talking about, is to try to extend those kind of questions to more mundane kinds of um, audiovisual forms, right? Including things like urban plans and how they recirculate around the city and what it means to to approach um, planning's visual culture, um, as I frame it in the book through these registers, right? What do we learn by both bringing that material that's too often left uh, maybe outside of the kind of critical humanities, critical media frame and on the other hand, what do we what do we gain by by pushing piracy discourse beyond its its uh, IP conceit, um, as is too often the case, I think, uh, uh, in recent work? So you know, again, starting from walking around the city and so forth, and you know, you were just referencing how familiar this um, this experience uh, would be. You know, one of the really just overwhelming tropes in the early two thousands is, of course, the use of these vinyl graphically printed construction site wraps, right? That would have enfolded in the city. And many of these, there were different types and it, you know, depended on what period and what part of the city you're in. Many of these were images of um, city spaces that were yet to be built. Right. So, you know, there was, and and, you know, many others have commented on this because it's it's fascinating, but there was a, a very literal material Present sense of how renderings, right? These these computer generated designs, um, you know, it's a common uh, practice, especially in architecture and, and 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 related fields. But how these renderings became these sort of immaterial architectures in the city, right? And so in certain parts of the city, I mean, this would be, you know, uh, for, for those who, who don't have any experience in, in China in this period, not like, you know, an occasional fixture, but could be like entire neighborhoods, right? That So much so that there are periods in, in places in the city that I knew better through what was on these billboards or, or, or uh, graphic wraps around construction sites than I do about a space, right? Because the spaces had been... Um, yeah, more or less erased in the sense. So examples like that, um, and there are many others, I think led me to try to understand the, you know, what, what was happening with uh, these mediations of a, of a city in transition, and especially what was the relationship between these uh, kind of blueprints or renderings and, um, And the earlier work that really focused on things like demolition, on ruins, and and so forth, right? That they they seem to suggest both two different insights in the field, um, you know, one more associated uh, maybe with the '90s, and the others more with the early 2000s, and yet coexisted in all sorts of um, complicated ways, right? And and then once, of course, you become fascinated by anything. Um, maybe you can find it and do any, anywhere, sometimes too easily. But certainly this was the case, right? Anything else I was looking at seemed to deal with these tropes. Certainly um, independent film and documentary in this period, not to mention popular film, you know, the the planning museum, video games, um, you know, the, the Olympic um, eventfulness that was constantly happening in the city, right? Live broadcasts uh, of this and that and so much else. So it became... Um, a fascination and also a kind of a way of understanding uh, some of these processes that I was thinking about.
0: And um, as I remember, actually, the cover of your book also emerges as one of these objects, right? Uh, so if I can describe it to folks uh, who are listening, it's basically a, a blow up of one of these renderings, right? Architectural Of these architectural spaces that are yet to be with an image of an office worker, sort of on the edge of this building, right, which is a very evocative picture, and especially, especially so. And as we will get to your later chapters when we start talking about the precarity of labor, um, and perhaps not not just office labor, right? Uh, you're you're much more focused on people who work in factories and these uh, in the production of these technologies, which are pirated or which allow for piracy so could you tell us a little bit then maybe in reference to that image about piratical citizenship and these infrastructures of dissensus and how people are in these spaces uh of course yourself as as somebody who was a flaneur of beijing uh you you experienced it to some degree but if you're you're much more invested in in showing how um the subjects about whom you write and, and about whose representations you write uh fair and become citizens in these spaces
2: yeah no that's that's right so i mean as as we were talking so the first chapter looks more at kind of official planning sorts of issues and and the example from the cover pivots more to the second chapter which um i you know i try to think about the ways that people inhabit a a city that's kind of become an image or a plan right that's that's in really material senses actually not ready to be lived in yet right and 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 in really material senses um in some ways um inhospitable right uh, uh difficult to 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 occupy and so forth so that image comes from a, a really great uh and many year going although i think it's been over for a while now a photography project from the artist sing don when who it's called urban fictions it, Essentially, what she does is she she goes to different real estate offices where they've built maquettes or models of um, real estate sites that are yet to be built, but you know they're going to use them to sell apartments. And she photographs them in, in detail, and then she takes these home and she photographs herself, and you know using Photoshop and other kind of post production software, creates stories where she's inhabiting these spaces. And, you know, that's a particularly dramatic one that I've always liked um, and that I think fits well with the title and and the themes of the book. But the the examples from that series range a lot. Many are quite funny. You know, there's there's some that are, uh, uh, you know, dark and, and so forth. But this idea... Um, that that attracted me to to that artwork, among others, is that I you know the artist was really thinking about the same problem I was, right, which was how do you inhabit a plan right in a in a very practical terms, and what happens when you add life to a plan or or what does the the kind of plan um in it especially in its kind of hyper real and, and, you know, all these greens and blues and this very promised futurey uh, vision, what does it do to the people that are already there?
1: Um, and so forth.
2: So, you know, taking up those sorts of questions and connecting back to the point um, about piracy and the, and the question you asked, one of the things I try to think about um, in the book, and, you know, this is maybe one of the the, the primary arguments is if we move the, the kind of legal, faking, piratical questions away from the sort of normative categories where they operate, right? A copied DVD or a VCD or a a, a fake Louis Vuitton handbag or whatever the objects um, that proliferate there are. And we start to understand public culture itself as a kind of pirate relation, then a whole host of other things come into view. Um and so for most of the book, it's tracing something like that dynamic that 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 motivates um, the analysis. So piratical citizenship, and you know, I think I have many concepts that riff in various ways with these kinds of um, problems, tries to get at, at exactly that, Which is to say, the intellectual property debate, poses legality through the terms that it has established, right? And if we flip that around, I think what comes uh, pretty sharply into view is that it's not it's not these simple objects that are being faked, but we're actually looking at the, the creation of kind of uh, illegal spaces, illegal subjects, e- e- illegal ways of living. And I think the important insight is that these are not aberrant or exceptional or unusual, but they're actually a kind of a normative condition, right? And this is where I turn to, um, yeah, a lot of work in, in, in social and political theory from, you know, people working in South Asia and East Asia, especially Partha Chatterjee, and his concept of political um, society, right? Which is this sort of space of democratic energy that uh, operates – through sort of social legitimacies, but in many contexts is actually illegal, right? So Chatterjee writes very you know, evocatively about very pragmatic political concerns, right? A squatter community in Calcutta takes up a space. And over time, their, their sort of ethical claims on inhabiting that space create pressures that get them things they need to stay there, right? garbage removal, maybe their kids are allowed to go to school, maybe a water spigot, right? All of these very pragmatic things. And what matters is those claims are not successful because they're legal claims, right? In fact, the, the kind of politics in the space is always illegal or quasi-legal and relies on other sorts of um, uh, kind of messy, uh, interstitial um, gray uh, political negotiations. Um, and and that resonated with a lot of other things I had I had seen and been thinking about and a lot of other folks um, that I had been reading over the years, especially people who tried to think about what it means to conceptualize a public sphere or a um, civil society in China. Um, and yeah, it felt to me as the, uh, I, I think an important way to underscore sometimes what happens when we, we, we get too taken with um, a preformed disciplinary question, right? So if you go into a context looking to analyze DVD piracy, then uh, as a media scholar, maybe we miss the way that the, re- the the kind of relationship between media and the piratical has all of these other effects. And I, I think it was trying to trace some of those. Um, yeah, that kind of moved the study.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and I think that comes out even more clearly in the last chapter of your book. And I think the question of disciplines and sort of ethical stakes of disciplines is something that I would like to return to at the end, um, because you really you finish your book addressing it. Uh, but before we get there, we have a few more fascinating chapters, and especially as a scholar of film studies and. At Berkeley too, it's called Film and Media, but originally it was film. Uh, The space of the cinema was exciting to put into conversation with all the other spaces that you consider, right? Instead of narrowly thinking about film as a sort of privileged practice and a privileged text, you're pushing to consider spaces of exhibition. So could you tell us about how cinema is embedded into cities and what types of cinemas as spaces function in China?
2: Yeah, thank you. Um, obviously, I'm looking at a very particular uh, period, so the the fascinations. It's it's always interesting to see, especially when you work on recent history, how quickly these things um, change. But it, maybe let me say one thing about the the structure of the book, and then I'll I'll come back to the question because. You had mentioned how it's, it's kind of written in this three, two-chapter um, dyads, and you know the original dissertation, I think, had three chapters. Something about planning, the television chapter, which I think was the first article I ever published um, from the book, and then a very shortened and kind of different version of the pornography and piracy final chapter. And in developing the book, which was a slow process, um, for all kinds of reasons, moving around a lot and, you know, doing other things, et cetera, each of these kind of parts sort of doubled itself. Um, the original chapter became two chapters. The the television chapter felt really clearly like it was missing this kind of cinematic, um, parallel and same with the, 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 the kind of last, um, section. So, you know, this was a period where I think a lot of the interest in, in Chinese cinema studies was, you know, rightly very focused on the films and on the directors, right. And on kind of traditional questions of representation and, you know, of, of narrative themes and, you know, uh, uh, certain directors or even, you know, how the films circulate and questions of censorship and, you know, all, all the rest of it. And so, you know, it, it, it's certainly the case that one of my starting points, you know, following things like the McCarthy book I already mentioned, was to sort of bracket what was on the screen because it felt like that was very well represented in um, the existing work to the point where it's it sometimes, to be honest, it was almost difficult to imagine what you could contribute to the sheer amount of work um, that you would see about the same film, the same director's um, you know, it came, became even a little bit of a snickering thing at sometimes at Chinese film studies conferences where everyone would be talking about the same thing, which on the one hand is amazing and reassuring because you have all this depth, and on the other hand, you're like, oh, you know. So, you know. Anyways, that's all to say that it was very, you know, intentionally the aim not to primarily focus on the kind of films that were being made, but to try to think about the social spaces and social practices, and especially the urban dynamics um, associated with uh, filmmaking, film going, film distribution and so forth uh, uh, that were transformed um, in this time. And so, you know, on the one hand, i would be living in beijing and i would go to the movies a lot um in all kinds of places right on the rooftop of a cafe at hohai at a university in a fancy cinema in a you know a hipster bar you know the full kind of array of 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 things i was a consumer you know of buying tons of first pirated vcds and and and, and later dvds and very fascinated, especially with how those moved um, through city spaces, but also someone who spent a lot of time in Songduang at the 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 Lixianting Film Fund and at the Sanxiang um, Center, where two of China's most, I think, significant film independent film festivals in that period were located, an archive was located, a lot of you know the filmmakers lived, and so moving between these spaces where. On the one hand, you had this robust, contentious, informal—you know—alternative. I think is is sometimes the word, uh, film culture, with all of its own spaces and and infrastructures, and you know, literally theaters and and sometimes just people's living rooms, right, where where film were consumed. And then on the other hand, you you would see the changes um, happening in Beijing and. It became, especially, you know, as the project developed. This was not. This was a chapter I think I wrote during my postdoc, so it was not. Uh, it was not part of the original study. It sort of came later, but as the the independent film festivals really started to get cracked down
1: on, and you know,
2: more and more Chinese filmmakers I knew were leaving China, and you know, it was kind of a grim, I think, moment in 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 that that part of the uh, the world. You know I became more interested in 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 some of these dynamics. Um, and you know, as with I think one of the examples I was talking about in the beginning, it became really apparent that there was a a lot of money and a lot of government right uh, effort to create really high profile like, you know, brand new, high-tech, beautiful films and film festivals to replace the informal parts, right? Again, you know, kind of back to this basic uh, observation that that the way development of these industries would work was by both improving them and giving them a lot of funding, but by kind of bringing them under a certain mode of um, management, and to do that often meant right taking over the the kind of unregulated parts and, and you know you saw this everywhere in the period whether it was somebody selling snacks on the street being replaced by a, a chain store in its location or whatever right? it was just a period of intense sort of regulation and,
1: and and reigning in of
2: of of things and that was certainly true um in in film going and yeah it was a it was a yeah. A very strong moment of that. And it also made me, you know, again, back to the question of not just looking at films, it made me realize how important control over uh, physical theaters and distribution mechanisms was for shaping what cinema could even be um, as a social practice. Um, and yeah, I think some of that, you know, comes, comes through in the chapter in terms of the different spaces and, um, but yeah, you know, that's already, most of those things I'm talking about were already nearly 10 years ago
1: Um
2: and yeah, it's already quite a different situation um, in places like Beijing.
0: Yeah, it's it's really fascinating. Always for me, as somebody who is working on making a dissertation into a book about the way that that process functions. So please feel free to bring up uh, that that type of uh, commentary as we finish the interview uh, in, with the next few chapters. Uh, and of course, the second one. Of this section, you've already pointed towards television, right? Television being the one that you wrote first, and as you mentioned in the introduction of our interview, it's very obvious that ambient television, Anna McCarthy's work, uh, underlies your desire, right, to pursue these televisions in outside spaces, right? Outside television, I think you call it, and. You know, even even as you as you caveat and say, oh, you know, things have changed a lot, uh, but certainly the presence of screens and various types of televisual modes in Chinese cities is, in fact, if anything, amplified. And therefore, your chapter really feels apropos of China. Even I'll admit, last time I was there was early twenty twenty, but at least at least then. <laughs> so, if you could tell us a little bit more about then television as this pair to cinema.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, there was a kind of maybe a screen, a screen studies orientation to the to the project um, at start. So I was very interested in just all kinds of urban surfaces that became, um, yeah, just part of the media scape of the city. So very quickly, film, television, planning, billboards—right? Examples like this kind of crystallized as really significant and significantly kind of underexplored examples in the city, right? So that sort of led me to to, to spend a lot of time with these and to try to draw out um, why they mattered. And so certainly you're right that McCarthy and, and similar projects to that really animated this, but it was also a period, you know, I'm not sure that I would have written the chapter like that if I were in China at a different period, right? It was It was also just very clear on, you know, even on the streets where I lived and so forth, the, the kind of tension between some of these older screen technologies and practices and the newer ones that were replacing it. And certainly screens were um, everywhere, right? On the on the seat of the taxi, on, on building facades and elevators, you know, uh, mobile phone technology was changing rapidly. And, you know, you get the first iPhone and 2007 or whatever. And very quickly, um, lots of, um, you know, cheaper knockoff non-Apple kind of versions of these, but yeah, the, that chapter as, as one of the first really, I think, developed part of the project, I think is where, and, you know, this is often the case, I think in writing, you figure out one piece and you can imagine the other is really, I think where the, 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 the project crystallized with me, just both the kind of political stakes, um, the different kinds of actors, the way that space um, and technology itself needed to be a kind of agent um, within the research. um, And also just the historical significance of uh, television, right, as, you know, in in kind of conceptual, social, political terms to to the story. That might have been something I would have missed if I had, I think, only focused on um, film, which I think is, it, 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 at least in my field, right, I, I knew better and, and, and was better represented. But there is one way over time, uh, and you know, I guess this happens as projects age, I have come to think about a lot of the examples I wrote about as being, actually pretty valuable histories for a lot of things that have happened since. So very quickly, they kind of constitute ways of understanding how the technologies and the practices that followed could emerge out of things that are, were already there and already vibrant and already had, whether that's, um, you know, the DVD piracy in the last chapter or whether it's even the smartphone or all kinds of, um, uh, other practices and, 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 and cultural politics.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we see. I, I'm happy that you bring this up in the interview because that tension between the old and the new, and that transitional transitionality of this moment. Um, but also, it always doesn't it always seem that China is always in some sort of transition. Um, and, and as media scholars, we're tracking it. Uh, I do. I do get that sense in my own work as well. Uh, so let's then turn to this this last pair. Your chapter five, you call vidiation as a mediation by video, and one of the things that was quite striking here is your maybe not reimagination, but the way in which in which you engage with um, affective labor, right, and technological affects in factories, and as I mentioned at the beginning, when I was asking you about the office worker at the precipice of a building. Uh, why don't we turn our attention then to not the office worker, but the factory worker and the way in which these subjects fit into the spaces that you've described and particularly through the medium, the format of video that you're focused on here.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and even in the TV chapter, which I think really sets up the, the last part of the book, one of the things I try to think about, is the figuration of the unhomely in, in the project and what gets left out of certain sorts of understandings or figurations, um, of certain sort of problems, right? So one such problem, um, as you suggest from the being on the top of the building, right, of course, where the Foxconn suicides, um, uh, in, in similar forms of social violence that had both gained a lot of attention um, and also became a sort of important way that people understood labor, factory production for for people outside of China, right? Even their relationship to China um, and so forth. And so, you know, I think a lot of the chapters in the book, and, and I, this is in some ways intentional, in some ways a peculiarity of how I think, but are very associative, right? I try to bring together... Different threads that feel to me like they sh- they should be together, and then try to explain why that is, even though um, <laughs> maybe you wouldn't necessarily often start by bringing the kinds of I- I- examples together. So in this chapter, right, it's it's partly trying to think about video um, as this neglected form and format um, that's often not taken seriously in the same way that, say, film is. Right there's. There's no such thing as video theory in the way there's film theory, right? All of the, it, it's, it's often seen as kind of a mere container or a consumer practice or low grade or temporary and all of these things. So to try to bring that together with some of these questions um, that emerge at this moment where video takes on a, a really new significance, right? With the rise of the internet as a mass medium, with the consolidation of things like smartphones um in everyday life and then you know so one of the questions you know became what other kinds of relations do we have to these practices um, besides models based on consumption there's so much attention to questions of things like spectatorship or like what do people who buy these things do um you know, so I became interested in trying to think about what are what are some of the other mundane um, relationships to these screen uh, devices that exist and that are important to how they're made and how they're made meaningful? Um, and, you know, it's parts of this are a bit more speculative because I'm not a, a factory ethnographer. Right. Right. Um, but, you know, you read and there are plenty uh, of, of, of important and interesting um, such studies of, of, of labor and, and factory life. There are a number of interesting um, documentary and activist projects that also take up these um, questions. And, you know, I, I wanted to think about uh, yeah, a range of ways in which yeah, video mattered um, outside of the sort of um, usual lenses, the ways it could be thought of as a as a political practice um, and a social practice. Again, that's constitutive of, of these aspects and not uh, uh, exceptional to it, which is very often, I think, the kind of normative discourses that get set up around these issues.
0: Yeah, and I mean, in doing so, you refocus... The conversations about labor that tend to be focused on bodies and perhaps not even subjects, but sort of s- these sites of violence into a-, a more nuanced and complex discussion of affective labor and desires and aspirations that uh, I think readers will enjoy. Um, but I have perhaps one more content question for you before I finish the content part of the interview, um, and then a, a more theoretical question. So, I'm very fascinated by your combination of pornography and piracy. On the one hand, it seems like an obvious one. Pornography is often pirated. But on the other, you're really doing something theoretical here. Um, you're taking up the temporality of pornography, which I I was happy to see that. Linda Williams is one of my dear advisors. Uh, So this on time, right? Pornography is precisely on time. And I think this speaks really, and in a way caps off what you've been doing in the book, right? Which is about the delays of under globalization or the sense that development is catching up. So could you tell us a little bit more about how you moved from that, material manifestation of perhaps pirated pornography or anti pornography campaigns to the theoretical consideration that you essentially end your book on
2: yeah I mean the it, it's funny because this this chapter had many um, iterations over the years as I've taken stuff out and put stuff um, back in and, and and so forth but it it was always very interested in um, the what what felt to me like a peculiar constellation around pornography and piracy, and and as you say perfectly right, they both feel like they should go together, and yet and. In another sense, they have absolutely nothing to do with each other, right? So I was fascinated by the fact that there is a governmental office, right, in China that that brings together the policing of these. I was fascinated by the number of films and artworks that explicitly um, take up uh, this problem and I was also fascinated by how each of these categories—the pornographic and the and the and the piratical have a kind of plasticity to them that has that has given them all kinds of potentiations, right? Some very um, negative and potentially oppressive, which is, I think, one of the aims of the kind of the the government office, right? If you call a crime pornographic, the, 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 that's a pretty uh, broad uh, political category. And, you know, on the other hand, fits with some of the concerns about piracy that, that I was talking about before. That there's something about um, informality and this illegal, this, this quote unquote illegal space, that if it's taken as the, the site of actual life, right, if we lose the, the baggage terms that too often hyphenate the discussion, then the new kinds of issues come into view. Now, the temporal question. Um, yeah is it is an important one for the book and you know it's one that's even framed in uh, the introduction and that you know very much it, it, it does underscore at least one kind of one of the arguments that that I want to make here um, which is that a lot of social and political theory um, the insights there, are very invested in a kind of long durée radical politics, right? A kind of utopian figuration that it, you know, has the potential side effect. You know, there there are a lot of, of course, important reasons um, that we need these areas. So that's that's not my argument. But one of the potential ramifications that it kind of reproduces the theological pie in the sky, sacrificial politics that is always diverted onto the future. Right. So that it ends up doing the same thing that a lot of the practices I'm criticizing in the, in
1: the, in the book do. Right.
2: And so there's a peculiar kind of timeliness to piracy and, you know, uh, to a little bit playfully, right. With the genre stuff on, on, On porn, but also literally in its affective felt um, dimensions that matter here, right? And so one of the questions is what happens when we bracket some of those uh, uh, long deray kinds of political concerns and take seriously very present oriented, often small, messy, make do, right? political interventions, right? What happens if those are, are are made more central within understandings of media, culture, social political theory, and so forth? And of course, many people have have been interested in these kinds of kinds of questions and, and, and taken them up over, you know, decades, if if not centuries. But I, I do think it speaks to some tendencies that were at least prevalent in, you know, the little corners of the field I was working um, and in conversation. Uh, with at the time, right, especially tendencies to to sort of bracket popular culture, and to um, yeah subscribe to a lot of pedagogical um, yeah I, I think developmental logics.
0: Great, and I that brings me beautifully to my last question. I'll just quote from your book. It's a question that you put to the field to your readers, and I I, I hope that you can help us answer it. So. You say that your claims draw attention to some crucial epistemological problems, and those are precisely the claims that you were just making. Do our theoretical frames work to understand conditions of inequality, illegitimacy, and illegality, what this book terms under globalization, or do they inadvertently contribute to the regulation of the political guarding or disciplining its emergence? So I think you've answered that question to some degree, uh, but I want to give you the last word.
2: Yeah, I mean, I it it really is a question I want to just pose because I struggle with you know I struggle with it, and of course uh, uh, a media and cultural theory book published by Duke University of Press is probably not going to uh, get get to the, the the pragmatic register, but it it's certainly the case. Um, that I think a lot of the, let's say, preformed disciplinary um, dispositions, uh, and especially, and I probably overstate this in the book, but I think especially a lot of the work that's constantly criticizing uh, the kind of cultural studies tendency to engage um, subaltern kinds of dynamics and and all of that. It's also the case that that work in a in a very powerful and oblique way, I think tends to to try to create a field that is um, powerfully apolitical, right? So, like, if we all just look at whatever this kind of question, or if we all take up avant garde, or if we do the, right, these these kinds of um, concerns, and so yeah, the you know that that chapter is kind of intended as the the conclusion of the book, and you know trying to trying to you know. Use the research as a uh, a creative space to push against some of the categorical uh, limitations has been one of my interests. You know, one of the framing points for this book and the Asian Video Cultures book is the simple, um, the simple observation that it's often the epistemological sort of categories, right? What we think we know that keeps us from seeing what actually exists, right? And I I think that kind of prismatic thinking is important throughout this book, right? That if I come in and with the question that I had when I started, I actually wouldn't see what's there, right? What Akbar Abbas calls a reverse hallucination, right? And I think that kind of, um, yeah, that's a common problem in academic work for all kinds of reasons.
0: Great. Well, I hope that the field can continue moving towards the answer in the way that you have suggested here. And what about your own continuation? What is your next project? What can we look forward to from you?
2: Yeah, thanks. Um, I've been doing a bunch of small things over the last couple of years and like everybody, haven't, haven't been to to China uh, uh, or anywhere for a while. But c- conceptually, one of the um, kind of energies pushing the next, I don't know, five years of my work or something has been to kind of shift attention from something like underdevelopment to problems of overdevelopment. And I've started to do that by looking at a a whole range of things, but especially practices around um, the bioeconomy and and biotechnology, and hopefully to try to develop some similar um, approaches to, to these areas where I'm looking at what kind of gets left out of the big picture um, in order to think about um, some of the really important, crucial problems in those fields. And so, you know, here I, I've been working on a set of projects pretty, you know, loosely and from afar, given the the difficulty of doing any like site uh, sort of field work. But looking at s- different kinds of issues that come out when we bring together an engagement with pharmaceuticals, um, and technology or especially da- data kinds of companies. So I, I co-wrote a book, I think you mentioned at the beginning with uh, Alina Chia, Susanna Pasonin, and Ravi Sundaram called Technopharmacology, which offers, you know, kind of a speculative first um, stab at these questions. But the, yeah, the plan over the next few years, I mean, we'll, we'll see how it goes if, if, if and when and what travel and, and so forth. Uh, looks like was to take up these questions in a multi-sided project. So again, this is where I think my interest in not being shoehorned into like a default Americanism or being the area studies specialist comes in. And so I had, I had a big grant actually to spend a lot of time in China, India, Germany, and the U S doing this multi-sided project, which I haven't uh, uh, done, but something like that energy is where the, the, the next, um, uh, set of issues go. And you know one of the basic ideas is that th- that there's a lot to learn by bringing together the really robust amount of research dealing with kind of pharma practices on the one hand and data practices on the other. And you know, one of the starting points is simply that even though there's all this research, these fields don't speak to each other at all.
0: Well, I look forward to seeing you put them into conversation. Thank you so much. And I encourage our listeners to grab a copy of Joshua's book and learn more about under globalization.
2: Thanks so much for
1: having me.